Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald Podcast Series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social, and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy, and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. In this episode, I'm joined by Glenn Hampson, founder and director of the Open Scholarship Initiative, OSI, a diverse, inclusive global network of high-level experts and stakeholder representatives working together with UNESCO to develop sustainable solutions to the future of open scholarship. Glenn's policy document, Common Ground in the Global Quest for Open Research, was recently published on Emerald Open Research and highlights themes such as alternative measures of impact, funding, and the future of open research. We'll be discussing these themes and more in this episode. Hi, Glenn. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the very basics. When we're talking about open and transparent research, what are we talking about here? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that there's a lot of confusion about that. People use those two terms interchangeably. And they're really not. They're not synonymous. So let me talk visually, if I can, here. Open really exists on a spectrum of outcomes. And in OSI, the organization that I'm with, we categorize this spectrum, and we've described it in uh, along five different dimensions. And we call it DARTS, D-A-R-T-S. The D stands for how discoverable a particular information artifact is. So, you know, can this information be found online? Is it indexed by search in indexes and, and databases and so on? And then the A stands for accessible. Once you've discovered it, can it be read by anyone free of charge? Is it available in a timely manner? Is it machine readable? Is the data set included and so forth? Uh, the R in DARTS stands for reusable, which has to do with the licensing mode of it, of this information artifact. And then also, you know, what other conditions, technical and legal and so forth, can prevent it from being reused or shared. The T gets to your question, transparency. What do we know about the provenance of the information? Is it peer-reviewed? What do we know about the funding source, conflicts of interest? What do we know about the study design and analysis and things like that? That really gets to the heart of issues of integrity in science. And then sustainable is another important condition. Uh, is this just a flash in the pan open? Is this information artifact sustainable? Maybe hard to know that particular answer. So we've got open existing along this spectrum, and it results in these different flavors of open that we've all heard, uh, green, gold, diamond, bronze, etc. And each of those has different elements of, of these darts displayed. So when we talk about open access, generally we're talking about the most favorable outcomes on all those things are sort of at the right end of the spectrum, if you can picture that, the right end being really super open and the left end being super closed. And all of these practices can improve transparency in science and in information, right? They help improve the integrity and reliability of, of science, but they aren't necessary or sufficient conditions. So open science can be bad <laughs> and closed science can be good. And, and our goal is to utilize open to make science better and help science really get to the right place. And one other condition that we really don't pay enough attention to is the gatekeeping mechanism throughout all this, because one of the main goals in open is to try to get things out there you know, quickly, right? But these practices can also 
mean being a little bit careless with how we get information out there quickly. And peer review is shortchanged, or we, we have different ideas of what peer review means in, in different settings. And so with the COVID crisis, for example, we see a lot of information kind of slip through the cracks that really doesn't do the research any justice. So we have to be careful with, with that element of open. To get back to your question, open and transparent, we need to uh, work on open to make sure that it feeds into this transparency in the right way and that we get the best of both. Glenn, can you tell me about OSI? Yeah, I'd love to. So OSI stands for the Open Scholarship Initiative. Scholarship as in research writ large, not just science and not just uh, humanities and so forth, but the whole endeavor of scholarship. And we're a group of, uh, we have about 450 participants or have had over the last five years in our group. Uh, And these are largely leaders in the science communication arena from I think about 20 different stakeholder groups. So we're talking about publishers, librarians, funders, uh, researchers, uh, government officials, and so forth. And our goal working together is to try to come up with a sustainable future for open. Well, so research on open access being published on open access is becoming more and more popular, and there's been a tide shift in recent years. So Emerald recently did a cultural survey, and we found that publishing through open access went from 29% in 2019, that is people who uh, support it and have a positive attitude, to 51% in 2020. So that's roughly half of researchers are now thinking about publishing open access or already have. What do you think has been the main driver of this change? Yeah, it's hats off to uh, all the organizations that have been pushing real hard over the years to, to try to make open the default form. Emerald among the publishers who have really put out some great open products. Really, though, we have to look carefully at these numbers. Uh, I don't mean to push back on you again with your, <laughs> with your question, but there is no set definition for open, right? So when people talk about open, they're talking about it in different ways. Some people are referring just to gold open. Some people are talking about green. Some people are talking about you know anything that you can read. And so the numbers really haven't moved much for the strictest kind of open over the last 20 years. And that is the kind of open that's CCBY licensed, that's immediate in the right kind of repositories and so forth. That's still, that very stringent approach to open is still jittering along at around 25, 25% or so uh, of the total amount of open in the world. When we look at the full spectrum of outcomes, though, and here we're talking about everything from right gold to green to bronze to, to whatever, then yes, those kinds of outcomes have been increasing to where over 50% of materials being published today uh, are being published in a, in a quote-unquote open format. But by that, we could mean something is still copyrighted and embargoed, and it shows up on PubMed Central, right? So that being said, this difference between in definitions is, is important to note, but it's also important to look at underlying in your survey and, and in other surveys that have been done, what the feelings are about open. And this CCBY licensing requirement is still quite unpopular with authors. And Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So CCBY is the Creative Commons licensing. And the BY component means that you can freely share an article. And the only requirement of it is that you say where the article came from. You provide attribution. But a lot of authors feel uncomfortable with that. They're worried about their information being misused and uh, or not getting the attribution that they deserve uh, for that work. So they prefer to have 
to add on a few other conditions like NC, which is non-commercial, and, and ND, no derivatives. And when you have a CCBY NC ND license, <laughs> it's just a fraction of a step away from just a regular copyright where you can retain full rights to the material and then under fair use limitations, somebody can reuse your material just fine. So what we see is this growth in the use of open, but not a growth in the acceptance of this CCBY sort of condition. So again, we're, we're counting different kinds of growth, if that makes sense. But it, by the strictest definition of open, we're still kind of stuck in the in the 2002 era. Well, you, you mentioned uh, some trepidations that authors might have. What do you think has been the biggest pushback then with open access? Yeah, it's according to the survey data, it really is the licensing and, and the concern about misuse. And it, it really goes looking at the history of science. I'm reading a book right now, uh, about 400 pages in, it starts to talk about the origins of, uh, of science with regard to, to publishing and how integral publishing was with regard to, to how we see science, how we do science, how science gets shared. And in particular, talking about concerns about credit, right? In these enormous debates that went on between Newton and Halley and Flamsteed and other scientists of the time, worried about how their data was going to be misappropriated and other people were going to take credit for their inventions and misrepresent the data. And those same tensions exist today and kind of run roughshod over them when we talk about requiring scientists to just release their data immediately and CCBY licensed uh, without taking into account what, what they're concerned about. So so those apprehensions are still there. That said, we have a greater appreciation today for the need to share data and and make it more accessible. And so things like FAIR have gained wide adoption, right? Making data findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable. These are still sort of just aspirational though, because even with wide adoption of FAIR, the devil is in the details. We're making it findable to whom and, and what's being opened and, and how reusable is it actually? And how accessible can it really be if it contains things like private health information or if it's too cumbersome to share or if the data set is, you know, huge image databases and so forth. And then again, you know, layered on top of all this are the same concerns about misuse and misrepresentation. And so open open data and this whole sharing thing, it's, it's, it's a really complex and volatile black box, really, that we've only recently begun to deal with. Well, you had mentioned the gatekeepers and how gatekeepers are important and acting as referees, maybe, on publishing open access. And obviously, you know, with the journal impact factor playing a role in, in that process, those are the biggest gatekeepers, aren't they? You know, there are a lot of researchers whose institutions are, are pushing them to publish in impact factor journals. But we have a lot of different opportunities with open access. And then there are a lot of pushes like altmetrics, which measure different measurements of, of impact. And then, of course, DORA, the Declaration on, on Research Assessment, that's pushing for a shift away from journal impact. Do you think it's really possible to reform this journal impact factor attitude? And can you see alternatives to that? Showing my age here, that's the $64,000 question, right? Nobody knows. Altmetrics aren't nearly as, uh, they're interesting, but they haven't really been a substitute for impact factors. Uh, and there's just a whole constellation of things like DORA that are out there that people have signed on to the, the lead and manifesto DORA, FAIR, and, and so on. These are sentiments that are expressing frustration of the scholarly communication community and what's going on with regard to the culture of communication in academia and with regard to you know, the need to be open and yet preserve 
credit and preserve the, the mechanisms for gatekeeping and so forth. But there is no uh, silver bullet yet. Publishers and funders in particular value the impact factor for what it gives them for being able to monitor in, in their own ways what's important in science, what's resonating. But the idea that we can get rid of these impact measures simply by creating a world of open, it's it's not going to happen because we're human. We like to rank things, right? There's always going to be the best open journal or the most impactful whatever. So even if we do away with the journal impact factor, the official version of it, there's going to be other ways of measuring that. So it's it's a good question and I, I don't know the answer. Yeah, it's something that we've been struggling with, you know, all week during these discussions, but it's something that we we regularly encounter. Yeah. So I've noticed in your work, you talked about how we need to stop aligning our limited funding primarily behind a one size fits all solution. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So we've been working in this space. My organization has been working in this space just, just since 2015. And before that, the Science Communication Institute that I also run has been working in this space since about 2010. And it's pretty evident that, well, in science communication in general, there's not enough funding. There's sort of a lack of understanding for uh, the importance of science communication in science. But with specific regard to to open access, the, the major funders in this space are, by and large, with a few notable exceptions, aligned behind the philosophy that open is a binary outcome, that something is either open or it's not, that it's either open as the coalition s folks have defined it for example which is you know ccby immediate and a host of other conditions they don't recognize open as existing along a spectrum and so the funding that they're providing for open infrastructure efforts and for for open education efforts and so forth are all geared toward promoting that version of open, which, which again, as I mentioned earlier, is sort of stuck in the mud. It's not being widely accepted for reasons of you know, that CCBY license or, or, or whatever. The fact, it's just not what the market is, is rolling out in terms of open. So if we can get to the point, if these funders who are very important in this ecosystem can get to the point where they can appreciate that this variety of outcomes, and, but that we're all working together to improve science and to improve the benefit of science for society. If we can see that bigger picture and fund efforts that can help develop our common ground and our common interests, I think we'll be better off than just getting behind efforts that only promote this one vision and this one path to open. Right. So there are people like us that are discussing these things about open access and, and different avenues and things like that. But for, for an average researcher who wants to publish an article, who's not really involved in the discussion, you know, what sort of incentives can we offer them to make open more attractive? Yeah. Well, one is, again, I keep coming back to the spectrum. I wish I had a picture to put on these audio, but coming back to this idea of the spectrum, there, there's a variety of outcomes, right? And it shouldn't be that you have to jump through a thousand hoops to get to open. It could be just as, as simple as publishing a preprint so that people can read your research. But aligning the incentives is, is going to be an important part of what you're talking about. So why do people want to publish open now? I mean, there's a variety of incentives. Some people, in fact, the majority of research, according to one survey after another, want to publish open because they want their research to be more visible and to have a broader impact. And open can achieve that. But they also want to make sure that they receive quality peer review. And they also want to make sure that the journal that they publish in has a high impact. Again, going back to this impact factor thing. So how do we get all of those things? 
together because right now they they can kind of be on opposite sides of the open reality frame. So the things that are the highest quality aren't necessarily the things that are that we think of as, as most open. You know, one way that we can get to that point is to improve open, right? To make sure that we put the same quality controls into our open publications as we have developed for our subscription efforts. Another is to do something with open, right? Make it abundantly clear that there's a benefit to publishing in open because by being open, the data can be integrated. You're, you're getting not only more reads and more citations from your work, but you're also getting more reuse in a way that advances your research. Make it a no-brainer that you know, why wouldn't you want to publish in open? Because when you do this, you have 10 times the researchers who are out there taking your information and improving on it in ways that would never be possible if it was sort of sequestered into this little side street of science. So that's where we can focus. But that main avenue, that really glitzy, you know, Las Vegas strip of open, it doesn't exist in just one flavor. We need to really focus on really developing the potential for open in, in a way that makes it exciting and inviting and intriguing. And that's how we get to the future of open. Something that I've noticed as a barrier is actually the style of the way something is written and the way information is produced. Oh, yeah. You know, we're trying to reach practitioners and we want to get practitioners involved. That's always a sort of hot button topic with publishers and then with authors who want to get outside of the ivory tower and then who publishers who want to get that work outside of the ivory tower. But then, you know, it's written in such a style that uh, an average business person isn't going to want to read something that's so academic and out of touch with reality. That's a different animal altogether. That's... Uh, it- <laughs> Once we're done with open, we can talk about that. It's something that's bothered me f- forever. Uh, you, you hear it argued different ways, right? Some people will say, well, you have to write that way because that's the language of, of a particular field. And then you hear others say, well, yeah, but if you, if, you, if you write in such a stilted academic, whatever, however you describe journal writing manner, then you're excluding the business world, you're excluding the, the lay world and the policy world, and you require these intermediaries to exist, uh, science journalists who can you know, read Latin and translate it to the general public. I think it's unfortunate that we've gotten to that point. And you know, there's even some studies that have, that have shown how language in science has become more complex over the last 50 years, where they like take an article written in, I think I read one example of uh, written in geology the article was written very clearly in 1950. You could clearly understand what they're talking about. And then by 1990, 2000, <laughs> there are no single syllable words. Yeah. Actually, research from the 1950s is some of my favorite. <laughs> it's very clear. It's very clear. Yes, right. So, well, the question is, has science just become more complicated since then? Or have we just decided to sound cooler, to meet the requirements of journals, uh, you know, whatever, uh, that we have to write more complicated? Yeah. And it, it, what it does is it keeps it in the ivory tower. Yes. And it, it keeps it in a smaller group of people who have you know, intellectual access and the intellectual will to work through that language to understand these articles. I don't disagree. But then there are people who would say, well, how do you, how do you explain genetics in, in a way that, that is both precise and accurate? and yet understandable. And that's sort of, that gets into the realm of science writing that I I would love to see researchers trained in that so that they can write that way, but it's not currently on the radar. Yeah. Well, in terms of open access, do you you see this affecting different research communities differently from sciences to social sciences? Yeah, and it already does. Physics and astronomy were pioneers in this area, right? They, They started archive back in the early 1990s. 
And this whole debate about open access is kind of kind of silly to them because that's all they do. Whereas other fields like chemistry have been more closed anyway than physics and astronomy. And, and, it, and it varies. There's also different requirements between STEM fields and HSS, humanities and social science fields, where the STEM people tend to rely more on journal articles and the Social science people tend to rely more on manuscripts, the long form books, right? And so this whole question about what the future will look like really depends on the different needs for different fields. Some will be served really well just by maybe even sort of changing the journal article to just a summary that's accompanied by the data, right? A quick summary, the full data set with explanations of what the data is so that it can be reused properly. Where do you see us going? You know, I mean, we're talking maybe globally here and conflating the different domains, but, you know, as a research community, what do you think we need to focus on over the next two to three years if we want to see, you know, more development in the transition to open? So a couple of things. The OSI has put together a, a plan called Plan A. And in that plan, we call for number one, doing more research in this field. We really don't know what we don't know right now. What is the impact of predatory publishing? on the journal landscape. What kind of open works best and, and where and why? How necessary are embargoes? How short can we get of an embargo period can we can we get by with? We've on our plan A website, which you can get to through the OSI website, we've identified a, a number of questions that we should look into. Number two is we need to work together on developing infrastructure. I think everybody in this space recognizes the need for infrastructure. The third part is uh, education and outreach. There's a lot of people in the open space who just who just don't know. You mentioned this before, but uh, you know, researchers who want to do open but they don't know why they should, and they don't know how. And it it can be very complicated, and it can also be unrealistic for many researchers who don't have a, a an office at their university to help them figure out all these things. And then the fourth touch point is common ground work. We have a lot of common ground in this space, common interests, common goals. And if we can work together on those, especially the ones that can not only help prove the worth of open, but also solve important societal problems at the same time. So the, the COVID thing is a great example, right? Can we come together and bring this data together for COVID and, and demonstrate how open works. We're, we're doing the former, we're bringing this data together, but we're not really de demonstrating that that we're doing it the right way because there's so much, again, there's so much junk that kind of has flooded into the system too, but we've, we've certainly seen the potential. So those four things, studies, infrastructure development, education and outreach, and common groundwork. And I think that gets us to a future of open that's uh, very robust and it's sustainable as well. Well, that, that last word, that sustainability, I'm curious about what you specifically mean maybe in, in, in terms of OA. Well, solutions need to be maintained, right? So a lot of times when we talk about infrastructure development, not we, but when some people in the space talk about infrastructure development, they're talking about a hand-to-mouth kind of existence. Why don't we get this foundation to finance this sort of solution, right? But getting that kind of support indefinitely is, is not sustainable. And then there's also sustainable in, in terms of whether data has, has the right sort of, whether it's preserved properly, whether the resource development exists uh, for building capacity, for, for maintaining solutions. It's not enough to just say, let's go ahead and make things open. We have to make sure that they're open today, tomorrow, and yeah, into the future. 
Yeah, well, along those lines, you know, it's not just enough to say it's open. We also want to make it inclusive and accessible. Yes, right. So this year's theme for OA Week is Open with Purpose. And one of those purposes is inclusiveness and accessibility. How do you think we as a research community can help foster that? It's not important to everybody. And it's that's just the reality of it. There's different motives for, for being open. Uh, for some people, it's just about improving the replicability of their work. For some people, it's just improving collaboration in their work. I don't want to say it's important just for a minority uh, of researchers, but again, looking at the survey data, equity and inclusion is important, but it's still, people are still selfish, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. They're concerned about whether their research is, is good. And they're concerned about their careers. The impact factor is still such an obstacle. Yep, yep, yep. But you know, that said, equity and inclusion are in that top 10 list. They're just near the bottom. And I, I think we can do it without necessarily saying that this is the only reason that brings us all together, right? It's possible to, to make research, to flip the incentives such that people are doing open because it benefits them. But hey, at the same time, it's also advancing equity and inclusion concerns. I don't think there are any shortcuts here, though. We can't just take the Sci-Hub approach where we steal everybody's content and then declare mission accomplished. It needs to be sincere and it needs to be robust so that we're including the need to improve access as part of the greater ethos of science. And it always has been, right? It's, it's sharing information and, and working together is, has, has been foundational uh, since, since day one and, and what science is about and how it advances. So this isn't a stretch. It's just different in the sense that we now need to do it globally and we need to do it across cultures and we need to do it across vast diversity of fields and, and, and so on. Well, each of those points have their own friction points, don't they? Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. When you talk about different regions of the, of the world, uh, different scientific domains or social science domains, those have their own issues that need to be worked out in their own communities. Well, I'm curious if you meet a researcher or when you meet a researcher who hasn't published open access before an article or isn't involved in it very much, what advice do you give to them? The first step, and my advice, my, my advice doesn't count. First, first, you know, talk to the people in your field, right? And hopefully you pick the right topic. But when you're ready to publish and, and you're, you're at that point, pick a journal that's well-regarded in your field. You've read a lot at, at this point in your career. So pick a journal where you would want to be published. I'm not talking necessarily about science or nature. It has to be a good fit. Where else, where are you getting the best information in your field? That's got to be on your wish list of places that you want to publish. Second, keep your radar up. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. You know, stay away from the journals that promise peer review in 30 minutes or advertise an impact factor of 99.9. Check to see if your library or institution subscribes to something like Cabell's List so you can make sure that you're not thinking of publishing in a predatory journal, which is, you know, talked about it before, but it's basically a fake journal with fake peer review. And then third, if you're worried about timestamping your research, then go ahead and publish a preprint first. Most of the articles that are published this way get published in uh, journals within about nine months. So, and in the interim, if, after you put a preprint out there, you get valuable feedback from the research community. So those three things I would think, but the most important thing is to do good work. Don't be in a hurry to put something out there. And there's a lot of pressure to publish and there's a lot of pressure to, to have you know multiple quantity counts, right? But I think more and more the environment and evaluation is turning toward quality as well. So make sure that what you what you put out there is really representing your research and it's not just publishing for the sake of publishing. Do you feel like things are moving in the right direction with open access? 
With open access, yes, I do. But I also think that there's a, there's a risk of divergence in this environment. As a whole, the tide is rising, right? We're, we're becoming more aware of open access. We're becoming more aware of the need to publish in open. Funders are getting behind it. Institutions are getting behind it. Countries are getting behind it. UNESCO is on the verge of getting behind it in a bigger way. But we're also still working in our silos. There's a lot of polarization in the space. So there's still people um, who think that open solutions have to look one way and other people who don't agree with that and they're doing their own thing. So what we could end up with in the not so distant future is Europe doing one strategy, the U.S. doing something different, China doing something different, India doing something different. And there's a risk there, right? If they go five years out with these plans, then what kind of a risk does that have to whether these different bodies of science can communicate effectively with each other? Well, you are part of these sort of steering committees. You're on the Emerald Open Research Gateway uh, Advisory Board. Do you feel that you're having an influence in this domain? I do, but my input is I'm just trying to channel the expertise that I have the privilege of, of sitting abreast with OSI. So there's just so much expertise out there that, that really needs to be heard and isn't being heard. And there really isn't an effective way outside of OSI for it to get channeled. So I think it's important that we continue to have this conversation, especially with regard to putting together a global plan for the future of open. How exactly we do that, though, it's I, I'm not sure. Again, UNESCO is trying to formulate a plan for the future of open science, and I'm privileged to be part of that as well. But not just open science, but trying to merge together these concepts of open data and open access, open source. There's a lot of open solutions that are connected into the open science environment. And trying to put together a plan that is sustainable, as we talked about, but is also very inclusive, that addresses the needs of all researchers everywhere. But at the same time, they're facing these headwinds from organizations around the world that, that have their own agendas and that have their own ideas and that aren't necessarily going to be very receptive to a, a global plan that's different than theirs. So, and caught between all this, I think are the majority of institutions and I would say even the vast majority of researchers who really just want an answer. They don't want a solution. They don't want to be told you have to publish here in this format with all these conditions. They want an approach to open that works for them. They don't want one size fits all solution. They want something that preserves their interests and their needs, but is also open, right? So the future of open, I think we're, we're, we're heading in the right direction, but we're also at a, at a critical point in the evolution of open where it's important that we work together, that we come together on our common ground and work together on our common interests. Well, COVID has really accelerated things, hasn't it? Well, it's accelerated, it's accelerated awareness, and that's a good thing. But it's also, again, it's, it's created this environment where some people think, oh, see, this is, this is fantastic. This is what open can do. But as we talked about at the outset, it doesn't mean that we've seen an explosion of high integrity research. We've seen an explosion of preprints, but we haven't necessarily seen the solution for open demonstrating itself. 
That makes sense. So it's really kind of a rush to get information out there yes. at a critical time. Right. And and hats off to, to all researchers who lowered their paywalls and, and publishers and researchers. But it still goes back to your infrastructure question. How do we do this sustainably, right? One of the questions that publishers are posing is, is that you know they're working overtime to meet all these demands for COVID right now, reviewing articles at a record clip, ignoring other things that are on their plate. This isn't sustainable for the long term. And so they're starting to think in terms of how do, how do we make this sustainable and one solution would be for example to have submission fees right so these article submission fees would have the dual effect of winnowing out submissions because people are more reluctant to submit something if they have to pay to submit uh, and then the fees would also help staff the publishers better so that they can handle these volumes just one idea among many but that's goes to the question of sustainability that you mentioned earlier yeah cost seems to be an obstacle there are several key points that this osi group came up with over the years about the future of open one of them an important one is that open will not be free it's going to cost something so we need to figure out how do we pay for it if it's something that we really want how do we pay for it well, these are all tied to the evolution of the internet itself, aren't they? I mean, if you look at how apps have changed and progressed over the last few years, I remember when apps used to be free everywhere, and now every single app you have to pay for or you have to pay a subscription. So I think that the attitude toward the internet itself might be changing where people thought, well, it's on the internet, it should be free. Yeah, exactly right. But somebody has to pay for it down the line. Yeah, you're exactly right. It might not necessarily be a financial transaction. It might be paying in terms of handing over your your Facebook account or, or whatever. There's different ways that people can monetize these these things. But the pressure to be free has driven journalism into the trenches, right? Over the last 10 years or so, where people are just getting their, their news for free and now expect to, you know, what's this, what's this paywall thing? Why should I have to pay to read more than 10 articles in the New York Times? This is an outrage. And yet, in order to sustain that kind of journalism, there needs to be financing from somewhere. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and hearing from Glenn. Be sure to check out other open research podcasts on our podcast series page. 